0: Ecclesiastes, it's an unusual book, it's tough. The book of Ecclesiastes is one of those books that man, the more you read it, the more puzzled you can get. And in today's passage, which you know, Pastor Clint, he's the one who divvies this up. He told me, why don't you preach verses one through three? Well, why don't y'all take your eyes and look down at verse one and just read verse one and it almost feels like a practical joke. In fact, Rick Blasey, Dared me to title this morning's sermon The Lord of the Flies. You know, he was a youth pastor for 17 years. It clearly ha- he clearly hasn't shaken it. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment. Hmm, okay. That's our text this morning. And with all seriousness, there's much here. Ecclesiastes has much to tell us, and these three verses have far more than meets. The eye. So why don't we read it together, and in so doing, I invite you to stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word. Ecclesiastes 10. Let me begin in verse 1, and I'll read down to verse 3. As you're standing, you also ought to wish a happy birthday to our student pastor, Blake Maxwell. Blake, happy sweet 16, buddy. <laughs> you know, Blake and I are the same age, but people think I'm in my late 40s and think he's a teenager. He's actually a couple months older than me. Happy birthday, buddy. You never made 33 look better. Ecclesiastes 10. Let's begin in verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart, it inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. Would you join me as we pray? <clears throat> Father in heaven, I ask now that you would come and that you would speak to your people by your word and that you would use me in spite of me as a means to that end. Impress upon us the weight and the wonder of an otherwise puzzling text. And I ask this in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The safest road to hell is the gradual one. It's the gentle slope. It's soft underfoot. It's without sudden turnings. Without milestones. It's without signposts. It's the safe one. So says C.S. Lewis. You might be more familiar with Jesus' version. The road to hell is the wide road. It's the easy street. You see... The safest, the surest road to hell is not the way of stark sins like murder and theft. It's not the way of dreadful disobedience like lying or cheating. It's not the way of rogue rebellion, you know, like paganism. It's not the way of idolatry like atheism. No, you see, the safest road, the surest road, Satan's great tactic, it's the road of subtle sins. Those things that are small and seemingly harmless. It's domesticated disobedience. Things that you struggle with that are so common they become almost unrecognizable. It's the way of respectable rebellion, those things that just compose all these small little compromises that an otherwise wise individual might commit. It's the way of invisible idolatry, known only to you and no others. See, in truth, it's the way of Solomon, who, despite his vast wealth and wisdom, the Bible actually calls him the wisest and wealthiest man in all history. Despite this, Solomon committed grave sins that began small and snowballed. And when you come to Ecclesiastes, in particular chapter 10, it's as if we are seeing Solomon late in life reflect back with sober judgment on his life. And in so doing, you're going to notice with me that this self-styled preacher, in fact, that's what he calls himself again and again in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher. This preacher bids we come and sit at his feet and learn from his mistakes. Solomon calls us to see with him the weight of sin. It's a warning to us we all too often underestimate it. Indeed, I would propose to you this morning that the theme of these three verses is simply this. Brothers and sisters, never, never underestimate your sin. Never underestimate the weight of sin. Now, you may have noticed I didn't read the word sin in this chapter. And that's because the word I want to fixate on this morning is that word. It's pretty much a synonym. It's the word folly. You'll see it in, this ver- in these three verses a few times. In fact, you'll find it nine or more times in the chapter alone. This word folly. Now, when you see that word folly, here's what I don't want you to think. The word folly ought not be regarded as a synonym for silliness. It's a synonym for sin, In other words, we're not talking about mental deficiency here. We're talking about moral deficiency. This is not merely a matter of the mind. When God calls a man a fool, it's a matter of the heart. Which is why Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's not in his mind merely. It's in the deep recesses of his heart. And so today I want you to see that these three verses they illustrate for us the great need we have as believers to understand, to know the height, the depth, the breadth, indeed the weight of our sin. And so if that strikes you as a little heavy, perhaps a, a little hard, perhaps even borderline gospel-less, grace-less, may I commend to you this morning that a shallow view of sin always leads to shallow views of God. And conversely, a deeper view of our sin is going to yield a deeper, richer view of God's grace. And so this morning this text shows us in these three proverbial verses, it shows us three reasons why we ought never underestimate our sin. If you're taking notes, mark this down. Number one, the first reason why we ought to never underestimate our sin is because, number one, it's more corruptive than you may think. We see this in verse one. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. Now before we try to make sense of what on earth that proverb means, just listen for a moment. Many of you in this room can look at a verse like verse 10, and you see that second half where it says a little folly? You see it, and if you were honest, you would say you've grown comfortable with just a little folly, just a little. It's not much. It's barely noticeable. It's just a, it's just a little Many of you in this room are flirting with secret sin. And the call of Christ to you this morning is to heed Solomon's warning. First off, I want you to see sin may seem insignificant. It may seem like this little fly. You see, when, it's, when, the, when Solomon describes dead flies and ointment, he's referring to the ancient art of apothecary, which what they would do, it's kind of like what we might call loosely a a chemist or even a pharmacist today. What they would do is they would create this balm, this ointment, and it was precious. It was an art. It took a whole lot of work. And so you could spend countless hours creating this wonderful ointment. And then but one little fly attracted to that sweet aroma would spoil it. It's like those boys at student camp who put on cologne at night. And the minute you walk out of your dorm room, all the gnats and bugs are surrounding you. Brothers, it's not worth it. Take the hint now. Flies are attracted to this ointment. And the proverb says there's, it takes but one dead fly to spoil the whole thing. Brothers and sisters, take a step back with me. It doesn't take much to ruin an otherwise wise and honorable life. It doesn't take much. Eve thought it was just a little piece of fruit. Esau thought it was just a little bowl of stew. David thought it was just a little glance when he looked at Bathsheba. Solomon thought it was just a little politics when he first married Pharaoh's daughter and then started to marry into other alliances. Ananias and Sapphira, they thought it was just a little lie when they lied about what money they were given. Your supervisor thought it was just a little lie. It was just a little fudging of the numbers. Your spouse thought it was just a little innocent text message. Your friend thought it was just a little loose comment. Your teenager thought it was just a little experiment. You thought it was insignificant. You, it was just a little fly. Shoo. It's not that big of a deal. Now, before we go to the latter half of this verse and we see why this otherwise little fly can infect the whole thing, I want you to stop with me for a moment. What are those little, small, subtle sins in your life right now? What are those things that you, it's just little, it's small. If you need help, make this your life verse. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. If any man thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. It may seem insignificant, but take it to the bank. It will prove infectious. What started small is going to grow. For we see in the latter half of verse 1, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. On God's scales, a little folly far outweighs a lifetime of honor. It could almost seem insane. Why? Why? why in his economy would that outweigh a lifetime of faithfulness? Because God knows that little things lead to greater things. The little spark in the forest, so small that my little two-year-old daughter's foot could put it out. I could spit and put that spark out that spark becomes a wildfire that all the fire departments in the state can't control. The little cut that you get working outside that a cheap two-cent Band-Aid could help heal if left unattended can become such an infection that the leading ICU is having trouble keeping you alive. What starts small inevitably grows. You see, on God's scale, little things are the big things. They are. That's why Jesus in Luke eleven thirty four 34 says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, when your eye is bad, it says your whole body is filled with darkness. It's your eye. It's just your little eye. Never underestimate the infectious, corruptive power of sin. Your witness for Christ is at stake. An otherwise sweet aroma of a life, a life of honor and faithfulness, can be destroyed in one moment by ignoring just one little pesky fly. It's just one fly. Your witness for Christ is at stake. Indeed, your very walk with Christ is at stake. There are many of you here today that are going to sit here for an hour soaking in God's Word. And you are going to squeeze your soul dry this afternoon with 30 minutes of triviality on TV. Just a little folly. You're going to squeeze your soul dry tonight with 30 seconds of explicit images. Never underestimate the weight of sin. It's more corruptive than you think. That's the first thing I want you to see. But not only is it more corruptive than you think, secondly, it's more captivating than you think. You may look at this text and say, I don't struggle with that. You know, I dabbled in folly back in the day. But now I identify with the wise man's heart. If that's you, I want to call you once again to take heed lest you fall. You see, when you look at verse 2, the word we ought to fixate on is the word heart. Look at that word heart with me. Sin is always, folly is always a matter of the heart. In the Hebrew, the heart is who you really are. It's the core of your being. It's the invisible inner life that controls your outer life, your hands, your eyes, your feet. That's why Proverbs 27, 19 says, as water reflects the face, so the heart reflects the man. Which is why the heart is at the heart of conversion. Because God knows our heart is inclined towards evil. That's Genesis 6. He knows that our heart is deceitful above all things. That's Jeremiah 17. He knows we need a new heart, which He promised to do in Ezekiel 36. He knows our heart needs to be opened as He did Lydia's in Acts 16. He knows our heart needs to be enlightened as He proclaims through Paul in Ephesians 1. God is after your heart. He's after you. He's not after your outward obedience. He's after the core of you. Which is why He repeatedly says, My people praise Me with their lips, but their hearts are far from Me. Because He is less concerned with your external conformity and He is after the core of who you are. He wants your heart. And the good news is, in Christ, He gives us a new heart. He transforms it. He opens it. But, lest you get too secure in your new life in Christ, folly still lurks. Indwelling sin remains. There's still that draw, isn't there? You know from your own testimony that one day Christ opened your eyes. You saw him at last for who he was. He gave you a new heart, and at last you were like, I don't love sin like I used to. And then 24 hours later, you're flirting with it again. 48 hours later, you're dabbling in it again. What's happening here? This is the power of indwelling sin in our lives. There are subtle sins that will uh, wage war with your soul till the day Christ takes you home and transforms you, glorifies you, the Bible says. There's those little things that are going to draw us. Our hearts are what lead us. We tend to follow our broken hearts, which is why one of the worst pieces of advice you could ever give somebody is to follow their heart. That's horrible advice. For my heart, brothers and sisters, as a pastor who stands before you 13 years of serving God's church, I still have a heart that longs for a little folly. Just a a little. You see in verse 2, he talks about two different directions. The wise man's heart takes him to the right and the foolish man's heart to the left. Not a political statement. I am surprised the Republican Party has not made that a part of their platform. That is not what right and left mean. In the Bible, the right routinely references a position of honor. David would say, sit at my right hand. It is referencing a position of blessing. You remember Jacob when he crossed his hands and put his right hand of blessing on Ephraim, who was in fact to his left. The right hand routinely symbolizes a place of authority where Jesus comes and after his uh, ascension, he sits at the right hand of God. The right hand is a place of honor. It is, in essence, the direction of God's will. Whereas the left hand is routinely associated with Going against God's will, the opposite direction. Probably most memorably, you may recall this from Jesus when he told that parable of the sheep and the goats, and the goats were on his left. In fact, the word sinister comes from the Latin that means left handed. My apologies to you, left handed folk. My mother's left handed. I have a place in my heart for left handed folks. Right and left. God's will against God's will. It inclines, the Bible says. Your heart is leaning. That's what that word inclines infers. Your heart leans one way or the other. And here's the trick. You may be looking at this text and say, well, good news, I'm a wise man. Christ has changed my heart. That must mean my heart is inclined to the right. I am inclined towards God's will. And the truth is, even in Christ, a little folly is always lurking which is why you must never follow your heart. Your heart must be led. This was Eve's folly in the garden, made perfect, and the fruit looked desirable to her eyes. Her heart called her towards that piece of fruit, and she followed it, and the world fell apart. This was Israel's folly. At the end of Judges, it says, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Their hearts were drawn that way. And so, brothers and sisters, we must recognize that it is our folly if we follow our heart. We must have our heart be led. And so... May I commend to you a few ways you can proactively fight the fight of faith to lead your heart that is otherwise prone to waywardness, that is prone to a little folly. How do you ensure a heart that leans to the right? As Ecclesiastes 10.2 says, For the life of me, I cannot recall where I got this. I've had it written down for quite some time. May I commend to you five ways you can this moment begin to pray for your heart. Intercede. Fight the fight of faith for your heart. Not just your outward behavior, the core of who you are. If you take notes, mark these down. Here's just five ways, and they're all alliterated. I'll begin with D. can help you remember. Maybe you could pray it every weekday uh, before you go to work. First off, ask God to give you a new Delight. A new delight. You can mark in your margin Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And say, oh God, make my heart's treasure be in you. Give me new delights, Lord. I confess to you that I am finding great joy in things that do not bring you honor. Give me new delight. Lord, would you give me new desires? Luke twenty two forty two. Not my will, but yours be done as Jesus modeled. Christ, I confess that I want my will. I demand it daily. And when I don't sense my will is being done, I am irritable at best. And I am unbelieving at worst. Give me new desires. Lord, would you give my heart a new sense of dependence? Mark in your margin, John fifteen five. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Lord, this is what I prayed this morning. Lord, I don't believe that. I'll preach it. In my head, I want to assent to it. But so much of my life, just ask my precious bride, so much of my life demonstrates that I'm just not believing that apart from You, Lord, I can do nothing. Would You grip my heart? Guide it. Don't let me follow it. Change it. Give me a new dependence. Lord, I need new discernment of heart. James 1.5 If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. Ask God. Oh, would you give me wisdom, O God. I confess all the ways that I am wise in my own eyes. That I do not lean on you unless I feel utterly helpless. And I often don't. I'm a pretty self-sufficient guy. Lord, forgive me. Grant me new discernment that I might seek your will in all things. And lastly, pray for your heart that it will have a new sense of desperation. Psalm 63, 1. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. I remember as a student in high school at my church in Oklahoma City where I was raised, our youth pastor preached that text, Psalm 63, and I sat there dumbfounded. I'm not an emotional guy, almost to a fault, and I teared up because I recognized I was not earnestly seeking the Lord. I wasn't thirsting for Him. I wanted to know Him. I, I, I knew Him. I was not thirsting. I confess to you as one of your pastors, there are many mornings where the Word of God is rich and enlightening. It is strengthening to my bones. And there are other mornings where I am not thirsty for God. And it's on those mornings that I must get on my knees before Him in my study at home and plead, Oh God, may I earnestly seek You. May I thirst for You. For I know by experience and by this Word that whether or not the Lord transforms your heart, and praise be to him that he has converted many souls in this room, sin will remain captivating to you. It's more captivating, brothers and sisters, than you think. Never underestimate your sin. May I commend one third and final reason why. We must never underestimate our sin. Number three, mark this down finally, because it's less concealed than you think. Verse 3. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. He lacks sense. When the man dabbling in a little folly is walking in life, it says he lacks sense. Let me give you my translation. It means he's insane. He's doing something that is categorically insane. It's like... Walking towards a cliff with blindfold on. At first it seems like, well, this guy's just kind of strangely walking with a blindfold on. And before you know it, everybody starts to freak out as he gets closer and closer to the ledge. It would be like last night, if you know, you know. Last night, walking with your hands over your eyes down Concord Mills Boulevard. It makes no sense at all. It started out small. I mean, the guy was just walking across the parking lot. You don't think a thing of it until you watch him continue to walk. And you're like, where's this guy going? And before you know it, he's going further and further. And like, that guy's about to walk across that boulevard. And as he starts walking down the boulevard, you're like, this is insane. This is the pattern of sin. It starts small and innocent enough. It doesn't look like much. It's just a spark. And before you know it, there is a raging wildfire. It's, it's just a little unnoticed cut, and before you know it, there's a life-threatening wound. For you, it was just a little secret indulgence. It was just a hidden flirt, and now it's become a noticeable, adulterous relationship. It, it started as just a little lie, and now it's manifestly a web of deceit. It was, it was just a secret experiment, and now it's become an addiction. Take it to the bank. You cannot, you can't keep your sin hidden. It will find you out. It's going to start and feel like it's nothing. But the fool lacks sense. And as he starts to walk, everybody's going to see. You can't keep it hidden. Indeed, you won't. Try it. You think you will? You won't. For look at the latter half of verse 3. He says to everyone that he is a fool. What that language is basically saying is he reveals it. He talks about it. He makes it known soon enough. You will one day show yourself to be who you really are. Israel learned this the hard way when God in uh, Numbers Uh, 32 said, your sins will find you out. David learned this the hard way, which we see him confess in graphic detail in Psalm 51 after his adulterous relationship and murder. Peter learned this the hard way after denying Christ three times. You've learned this, haven't you? If not, you will one day soon. One day we will stand all all, every one of us, utterly and completely exposed. Hebrews 4.13 says no creature is hidden from God's sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we will one day give an account. And before a holy God, (laughs) that is a frightening prospect. But remember, a deeper view of your sin is going to lead to a richer view of God's grace. Which is why the Gospel of Jesus is such matchless, precious news. For God in Christ, who sees you this moment you are exposed before Him, He sees you, He sees every part of me. He knows every sliver and shade of my hypocrisy. He who sees me fully and completely, He has come to me and He has come to so many of you and He will come to you this day. And He will sing you for who you are. He will wrap you in the righteousness of Christ. He will cleanse you with the blood of Jesus. God will come in Christ to you and He will be for you what you cannot be for yourself. For He is the quintessence of wisdom. He is the definition of wisdom. In Him is all wisdom. Jesus is the essence of the wise man that Ecclesiastes and Proverbs portray. He is our only hope. He will be for you the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through this Jesus, and praise be to Him, this Jesus, when He comes to you, He will see you captivated by sin. He will see you corrupted in heart. He will see you, like Adam and Eve in the garden, attempting to conceal your sin. And He will come with gentle, loving, fatherlike care. And He will call you to Himself. But the Bible says you must repent and believe. And so this day, my plea to you is that as you've heard the word... And if you are pierced by it, if there is secret sin within that has convicted you to the core, the call of Christ to you is to confess that sin. It may be grabbing your spouse's hand this moment. It may be talking this afternoon. It may be coming to me or a pastor and saying, Brother, I need help. I want to confess this sin to you and ask for accountability. Confess your sins before God and He is faithful and He is just to forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Repent of that sin. Turn from the left to the right. As verse 2 says, follow after Christ and remember, indeed beware, that the safest road to hell is the gradual one. Would you join me as we pray? For many of you in this room, that means you must this moment cry out to God and say, "Oh God, there are secret, subtle sins in my heart. I have entertained a little folly far too long. As we sing in a moment, that might be a time for you to cry out in praise and prayer to Him and say, "Oh God, do a work in me. If you have not reached that point of conviction, my plea to you this moment is to consider now, not later, now. What are those little sins, that little folly within? Maybe that means tonight you need to go home and journal them. Write them out. Whether you're into that sort of thing or not, today's the day. Go write those out. Confess it to God. For others of you in this room, you've never tasted and seen that He's good. And so this is the hour. This is the moment that you must receive the grace of Christ. Just turn from your sins. Confess it. Believe repent, and receive the glory that is the grace of Christ. And you will notice that the weight of sin will be lifted off your shoulders as you behold the glory of his wonderful grace. Father in heaven, do this work. I cannot, my words are so small, so futile, if you do not come by the power of your spirit and change the hearts of men. And so would you convict the hearts of your people so that shallow views of you and of sin would be abolished. Oh, Father, would you deepen our view of our sin that we might revel in the deep riches of your grace. Do this, I pray, for the glory of your name and the good of your saints. In Jesus' name I ask this.